Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 79. My name is Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders of Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, we're going to be chatting with the one and only Matt Bromley about some cutting-edge intel coming out of the Lima Charlie community Slack channel. Another week, another set of bad actors, malicious code, and compromised systems. We're back once again to talk about some of the cutting-edge intel being shared by our awesome community in the Lima Charlie Slack channel. And as always, a huge thank you to all those folks that take the time to share their knowledge with the rest of us. You find folks are there week in and week out bringing this stuff to our attention, and I truly believe sharing knowledge makes us all a little bit safer. I'm joined once again by the one and only Matt Bromley, who is here to help us make sense of what we're seeing coming through the wire. How are you doing today, Matt? Hey, Chris, doing well. And uh, yeah, I think you phrased that one really, really well there. It, uh, it it definitely dices us all a little bit safer by sharing this knowledge and talking about what we're seeing and things like that. So and, and, and equal and uh, equal sentiment over to that Intel channel. Thank you all for sharing what you do. Yeah, and before we get into it, I just wanted to uh, maybe open the door for you to talk about a, a new initiative we've got starting up at Lima Charlie soon that people might be interested in. Yeah, I think this is probably going to be our Defender Fridays. Uh, we've got a really, really cool thing going on over here at Lima Charlie. So for anyone who's been familiar with us before, we have often held office hours on Fridays, which have been kind of an open forum time. A chance for folks to, uh, you know, come check in and, uh, you know, see what's going on, talk to folks over at Lima Charlie and whatnot. We are going to be launching next week, Defender Fridays, uh, next week being the, uh, let's see, it should be the, I think either the last week of November, maybe the first day of the December. The 30th or the first, yeah. One of the two, yeah. And it's going to be Defender Fridays. So uh, just reading from it, it's going to be a security operations and engineering series. Uh, it's going to be, you know, a 30 minute session, 1.30 p.m. Eastern, 10.30 a.m. Pacific time. And this is going to be a chance for us to get into the world of information security, you know, uh, having guests on, talking about all sorts of things, blue team-ish, defensive, so on and so forth. And as usual, lining up with what Lima Charlie does best, right? Fostering collaboration, letting ideas flow, sharing experiences and things like that. So for anyone who's listening to this podcast and, and really, really wants to get some more insight or some more thoughts or special guests and things like that. I, I highly recommend you come and check this out as well. I'm sure we'll probably have a link in the show notes for you. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm really excited about it too. Having you, Eric and Whitney on there and, and whatever guests we're going to have, I think is, is going to really bring things up a notch technically and showcase some really cool stuff. That's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing. All right. So the first one we have is a, about a little piece of malware called System BC, which is also known as Caroxy or Droxydat. It is a very versatile piece of malware that gets categorized as proxy malware, a bot, a backdoor, and even as a rack. The malware has been active since 2018 and has gained significant popularity. Caroxy achieves execution on target systems through various methods. Recorded attacks have involved reconnaissance phases, lateral movement, and the deployment of System BC, often complemented with Cobalt Strike. In other cases, it has been employed in campaigns through spear phishing where it is delivered and installed on the victim system via loaders or other malware. While the malware's methodology has evolved, its core functionality remains consistent. In most versions of System BC, it seeks to gather system and user information, establish persistence, and then creates a SOX 5 connection with the command and control server, transmitting basic information and waiting for commands for the launch of other malware by the attacker. This provides a backdoor for the attacker to operate from their infrastructure. As mentioned, there is a lot of variability in how the malware is deployed and operates, but there are some attributes that show up across multiple samples. 
The article has a really technical 50-page deep dive attached to it if anybody is so inclined. I was really fascinated by some of the intelligence they reported with on this one. They shared some screenshots of various forums where threat actors are inquiring about updates and new features. They also identified some infrastructure where the would-be threat actors can purchase access to the underlying operating system of a given host, or at least that's how I read it. It's pretty wild. It shows up as a pop-up screen showing the prices for Windows and Linux, 350 bucks for Windows, 300 for Linux, and then a countdown timer for how long they have to pay using crypto. The researchers also say that uh, these wallets receive multiple payments daily. What are, what are your thoughts on this, Matt? Is this how you scale a malware business? And have you seen this one out in the wild? First off, this is a really, really interesting one here just because of like the sheer amount of detail we get with this particular article. Uh, you know, you mentioned that 50 page research report, which is something I started to delve into and definitely haven't finished yet, but will take time to do so. Um, I, I think this is, this is definitely one way that you scale a malware business. You know, if you've got a really solid piece of malware that complements a lot of threat actors, and again, I, I use complement in the term that they work together, not in the form of us complementing threat actors. We never like to do that here. But, you know, if you've got something that works really well, setting up an online marketplace so that threat actors can download it and access it and integrate it within their attack path is, you know, kind of the, the default step, I think, to go in order to be able to get that out there. Uh, I think one of the things that I, I read in this one, Chris, which we've talked about before, is just how malware authors and threat actors out there, you know, they really do, they make it a business. They they make it a thing, you know? I mean, an online portal, countdowns, using crypto to pay for it, uh, you know, certain options and things, I think is just a, another way to kind of scale that business out and automate it. And, and as much as, you know, I don't like to say this, make it a form of passive income. Write a piece of malware, market it, scale it, get it out there. It's been around since 2018 and has been, you know, very, very popular amongst quite a few different number of groups. I was looking over uh, some of the groups that they've called out here, and we're talking everything from ransomware threat actors, financially motivated threat actors, and a bunch of different spider events, which tend to fall into some of the financially motivated or, or ransomware groups as well. However, you know, it's always interesting to find a piece of malware that's versatile like this. And uh, I think there's definitely a lot of detection opportunities in here. I will mention for anyone who's curious, there are multiple different types of hallmark commands or hallmark things that are included with this particular piece of malware. Um, some pretty solid detections can be written in there. So I definitely recommend using those to detect this if it's something that you're concerned about. Look for the behavior, not for the hashes and stuff, because that can change far too easily. Uh, the next one up is from the OnLab Security Emergency Response Center's analysis team, which has published an article outlining their recent discovery that the DDoS TF DDoS bot is being installed on vulnerable MySQL servers. DDoS TF is a DDoS bot capable of conducting, you guessed it, distributed denial of service attacks. It was first identified around 2016 and is known to have been developed in China. It is notable for its support of both Windows and Linux environments. Basically, threat actors scan the internet for publicly accessible systems using port 3306 and then use dictionary-style brute force attacks to get in. And I think we talked about a very similar attack method recently on MSSQL that leveraged XP command shell, which should be disabled unless you really need it, which you probably don't. At any rate, uh, since MySQL does not have the equivalent of XP command shell, threat actors can use something called a user-defined function or UDF, which ultimately lets the attacker run commands. A UDF is basically a bunch of code rolled up into a DLL, which the threat actors upload as a UDF library to the infected system. They then load this DLL into the MySQL server, 
It is through this process they are able to deliver malicious commands to the infected system. The article goes on in detail how the attack progresses and offers some analysis of the DDoS TF bot. I feel like I've said this on the show a couple of times before, which really gives me pause, but you really shouldn't have your database ports open to the internet. There are very few, if any, scenarios where this is a good idea. What do you think, Matt? Is this an attack technique that defenders need to be aware of, or is this a call out to the IT departments to get their MySQL databases off the internet? Oh, it's, it's it, without a doubt, it's a little bit of both. Absolutely. You know, I think this one is is really unique just because of the different techniques and, and uh, different things that the adversaries go through. Uh, I think, you know, the, the, the use of the UDF or, or the user defined function, you know, kind of exposes, as you mentioned, Chris, that XP command shell capability, which was very present in, in Microsoft SQL, but is not omnipresent in or sorry, not present in MySQL. But this does, you know, give threat actors a way to kind of get that capability or get that uh, get that feature set in there. So I find this one to be pretty interesting. I also think that it does speak volumes, as you mentioned, towards, you know, do your databases need to be facing the Internet? And the answer to that is 100 percent no, without significant, significant reason that no business can justify. You should not have these things out there facing the Internet. I, I'd be very, very hard pressed to imagine a scenario where it's 100% necessary without the necessary uh, security controls in front of it. So I, I think that this is a wake up call for folks out there, especially if you're running these. Where it gets really tricky, especially for something like MySQL, it's an open source database solution. I can go to any sort of uh, VPS or cloud provider right now and spin up MySQL and use it really easily. And then, you know, just integrate it with some sort of an app or a POC or something I'm creating. So it's really easy to get up and running. And unfortunately, a lot of instances just get left open um, or a lot of, you know, databases are, are opened up or their ports are open by default. They're not closed off. Firewall rules aren't created or aren't implemented. And we are left with this tough situation uh, where, you know, you've got this thing facing the Internet that shouldn't be. And I think it's a wake up call in both avenues. Defenders, watch out. Be aware of UDFs, especially if you've got MySQL databases in your environment that you need to protect. And those of you database administrators and whatnot, make sure those things are closed off. There is no reason for this thing to be facing the internet. Yeah, I couldn't help but think that when I was reading the article that, you know, these instances that attackers are penetrating are probably just people like working on their first mobile app and not necessarily businesses or or anybody who would have a, a commercial asset to go after, but it does give the attackers that platform from which to launch attacks against other people. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is I am uh, I didn't do this research as we were as I was as I was prepping today, but I'm gonna go through and do it now. Um if I go through and just take a look at something like Shodan and dig into like open MySQL instances and whatnot, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that it will be very low. But the results after a really quick showdown search are 3.5 million MySQL instances that have been identified. So this is, uh, you know, now granted, they're not all vulnerable. However, that's a pretty, pretty big list of, you know, port 3306s that are facing the internet and responding in some way, shape or form. So if I'm an adversary and I'm looking for some targets, you know, they're out there. So folks lock these things up. Yeah, I wonder what percentage of those would just be sitting there with the default password too. I bet you it's it's at least one percent. And when you think about three point five million, that's uh, that's not an insignificant number of machines. I, I don't want to click in to find out, but I'm guessing it's probably more than zero. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, what a world. All right. Uh, the next one is from Bleeping Computer, and I have to say that I did have a bit of a chuckle when I read this one. I don't want to make light of the experience of victims of cybercrime, but I have never seen anything like it, and it really speaks to the ingenuity these bad actors will display at times. Uh, the notorious Alfie, or Black Cat, ransomware group has taken extortion to a new level by filing a U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission complaint against one of their alleged victims for not complying with the four-day rule to disclose a cyber attack. According to databreaches.net, the Alfie ransomware gang said they breached Meridian Link's network on November 7th and stole company data without encrypting systems. And then when Meridian Link did not contact them to negotiate a ransom, Alfie filed a complaint with the SEC against Meridian Link for not disclosing a cyber incident where, and I quote, customer data and operational information was compromised. A screenshot of the filings was shared by Alfie, but I was not able to find any confirmation or acknowledgement from the SEC. Upon further reading, the new SEC rule that requires public companies to disclose a material breach within four business days does not come into effect until December 15th, 2023. And I got to say, when I read that, it made me think about the Caesars Entertainment decision to file disclosure earlier this year. Quite interesting because they didn't need to put that publicity on themselves, but still chose to do it. So in the end, it seems Ready and Link was on the right side of things, but I think this will definitely stand out as a possible consequence for anybody thinking about trying to sweep a cyber incident under the rug. I'm really interested to hear what you think about this one, Matt. Yeah, I, I got to say, when I first you know, heard about this the other day, I, I had to admit I was initially kind of confused because if I'm a threat actor, do I, do I want this to be made public? I mean, I, I get from an extortion perspective like hey i'm gonna file a complaint with the sec but you know if the sec i mean the sec is is not gonna call up that victim and say you need to pay the ransomware threat actor right maybe they did it as a way to tell future victims hey you know we'll report you but there's kind of a catch-22 in here Uh, first off let's be very clear I, i i think saying meridian was in the right because of the time frame of when the SEC rule goes into effect is is like it's a ticking time bomb, right? Well, you're you're right right now, but in three weeks you won't be right. However, Meridian's response of we have not found any access or any unauthorized access to sensitive customer data or anything, I think is probably the biggest takeaway from this so far. You know, did Meridian get compromised? Yes. Did data get accessed to the definition of the rule or the law that it requires disclosure if it was December 16th? Well, that's going to be up for interpretation, right? That part's going to be up for interpretation based on the, the based on lawyers, based on data that was accessed, based on the status of the investigation, so on and so forth. And as, as much as I don't like to see this happen, there will be folks who will weave their way through loopholes in the code that will basically say, well, it's only, you know, and I'm hypothesizing here, I, I don't know exactly, but someone may say, well, you know, there was uh, an intrusion. However, it was not a material event. Therefore, we didn't have to do anything, right? Or data was not accessed, right? Or let's go a step further and let's let's quantify, like, what is an intrusion? What's an attack? And I think what you're going to see come out of this from that kind of legalese sense is a real big breakdown into, you know, what types of things constitute reportable events? Do we have the time for it? Does the investigation support it? So on and so forth. But if I'm a threat actor, you know, threatening, hey, I'm going to report you to the SEC if you don't pay me, 
I would almost turn around and be like, well, I have to report anyways. So never mind. Right. Uh, if, if it's that big of an event, it's kind of like, well, you don't really gain an upper hand here because if you think about the opposite of that is, Hey, if you pay me, I won't report you. And it's like, well, I'm breaking the, the law at that point. So it's, it seems kind of weird. I was, I was thrown for a little bit of a loop as to, as to why the adversary might go this route. Now, I would view this as a final step, maybe, where it's kind of like, hey, you know, I want $5 million and someone's like, I'm only going to pay you one. And it's like, if you don't pay within 72 hours, not only are we going to expose your data, but we're going to, um, you know, uh, notify the SEC, in which case you're kind of undercutting. And for anyone who's doing quick math, 72 hours would be three days. So, you know, you have four days to report, but as your threat actor, I'm going to report you in three, taking away that extra day you might need for data determination or investigation outcomes or something like that, right? I I would view that as maybe a way to get folks to pay, but at the same time, it's it's kind of like you're, you're still hastening an eventuality or an inevitable timeline if you will. So, and and I guess if I look at it from another angle, there's no way for the threat actor to be like, Hey, pay me. And you don't have to report, right? Like there's no incentive there. It's just, I'm going to accelerate your timeline. If you don't pay me, it's, it's tough to find what would be the threat actors incentive there. If you will, uh, you know, we're, we're not complying with the four day rule. I don't think it makes the threat actor any more legitimate doesn't put them in the good graces with the SEC or anything. In fact, I think it, you know, maybe is a little bit too much bravado. But uh, nonetheless, I'm curious to see if this happens again in the future. Yeah, I couldn't help but think it just kind of felt like a troll. And I know a lot of these threat actors crave fame, which is seems like a weird thing to want when you're a criminal. You think you'd want to stay under the radar. But, you know, given the media coverage that they received from this, I can't help but think it was maybe just a tongue-in-cheek sort of publicity stunt. I could see it almost as a little bit of a, like, look how untouchable we are moment, if that makes sense, where it's kind of one of those, like, you know, we're so untouchable and prolific that we can report our own victims and stuff. But again, you know, I I don't, and maybe there's something that I'm missing in the overall equation here, but, you know, hey, I reported you to the SEC. Well, now I'm definitely not paying you. It maybe if I go a step further, the only time I could not only, but I may maybe perhaps one of the biggest ways I could see this to be beneficial for the threat actors is if there are multiple ways for me to report to the SEC, some of them being very loud and proud, some of them being kind of very quiet, tucked inside of an annual statement or a quarterly statement. I'm obviously going to want to choose the latter. So maybe the threat actors' motivation here is hey, I know you have to report. You can report quietly on your own, kind of like what Caesars did. They snuck it in a statement there, right? Or I can report loudly for you. And maybe as I talk through this, maybe that is the avenue that they're trying to explore is to say, hey, you can do it two ways, really loudly or really quietly. And I'm going to force the loud way unless you pay. Yeah, that sounds like something my dad used to say to me. We can do this the hard way or the harder way. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, threat actors kind of saying it's my way or the highway as well. And, and unfortunately, neither way is painless 
one is just a little less prolific than the other. Yeah, yeah. All right. So uh, the last one I have for us today is an interesting article about detection evasion techniques observed by researchers at Outpost 24. The article is basically a deep dive into a new anti-sandbox technique uh, Luma C2 4.0 Steeler is using to avoid detection if no human mouse activity is detected, along with some other techniques being employed, such as control flow flattening, which is basically just obfuscating the way the program actually runs to make it harder to analyze. And for those that may not have heard of it before, Luma C2 is an information stealer written in C and which has been sold in underground forums since December 2022. It is a malware as a service and has been through several iterations, which is why it's now version 4. I didn't go through it in detail, but it looks like a pretty detailed technical breakdown with lots of stuff for folks who might be interested in learning more about detection evasion techniques. Matt, what do you think of the no mouse detected evasion feature? Seems like an obvious way to try to avoid automated analysis, but uh, it's presented here as an innovation. Yeah, I actually find it to be a pretty novel way to determine whether or not you're inside of a sandbox or some sort of uh, automated, you know, malware to detonation engine or something. I I find this one to be pretty unique, pretty novel here. Uh, I think, you know, we've talked before about evasion technique or defense evasion techniques and things adversaries will go through to make sure that their code is, you know, not executed by the right folks and executed by the, by the, uh, you know, I should say maybe not executed by the wrong, executed by the right. And I think this is just another way to say, look, I'm targeting systems where users are actively, you know, interacting with the system and whatnot. Um, I'm not sure if the malware authors necessarily thought this one entirely through. A lot of, I think it depends on kind of your target audience. Um, if I'm looking for mouse movement, then you're kind of limiting yourself to user workstations and things like that, which is totally okay. You know, it's a first stage malware. So maybe that's what my goal is, let the adversary get in and then move around from there and whatnot. But if I think about, you know, no mouse activity, I, I would say most servers are going to fall into that kind of category as well, where there's not going to be any mouse activity to the point where, you know, Windows and Linux servers might not even have a UI, might not even be the concept of a mouse. So in that capacity, you're you're kind of, you know, limiting what you can what you can be deployed onto. But at the same time, I think the real goal here is I want to avoid the decision process where a sandbox is the one that says yay or nay. And in that case, you know, it's a pretty novel and unique technique. I would argue and say that they're just going to go and adjust their sandboxes and drop in like a mouse jiggle or something like that, which became very popular during the work from home days. But um, nonetheless, uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a completely innocent technique, but it definitely is a unique novel way to say, I want to make sure there's a functioning user behind this thing. And this is one way I'm going to determine whether or not there is. Okay, well, I think that's all we got for today, Matt. Thank you for coming out again to do this with me. Uh, always interesting running through these articles posted by those people in our community forum, which I think the last time I checked is about 360 people on that specific channel. So I'd uh, love to see people join, love to see those conversations. If uh, you're listening and you haven't joined, come check us out, slack.limacharlie.io. And uh, yeah, I think that's it till next week. Love it. Sounds good. And to everyone who's in the U.S., uh, this uh, episode is recorded the day before Thanksgiving. So hopefully uh, everyone's ready for a, a happy holiday. And Chris, I'll offer one more shout out. There are plenty of folks who are still going to be at their desks, still staring at screens, still watching for threat actors. To those of you working through the holiday session in the U.S., uh, we definitely applaud and, and a hat tip your way as well. Thanks for keeping everyone safe during the time that the rest of us are stuffing our faces. <laughs> well said, Matt. Thanks a lot. Thanks. 
And that concludes this episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. If you have any feedback or ideas for future topics, please send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. You can access the intel we talk about on the show in real time and join the conversation on the Lima Charlie community Slack channel at slack.limacharlie.io. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with someone or leaving a rating or review. And don't forget to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening from. Thanks for listening in. We'll see you on the next episode.